If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Welcome to episode 238 of the Leading Learning Podcast, which features Dr. George Siemens, professor at the University of Texas at Arlington and director of the Center for Change and Complexity in Learning at the University of South Australia, though those titles barely skim the surface of his work, which you and I, Salisa, have been following for literally decades, and I actually got the chance to talk with George when I was writing Leading the Learning Revolution. You got to talk with him this time. What do you and George discuss? Well, it was a true pleasure for me to have this chance to talk with George because we have been following his work for so long, and I was glad we could work out the North Carolina-South Australia time difference to make the conversation happen. George and I talk about connectivism, the theoretical framework that he developed for understanding learning in a digital age. We get into artificial intelligence and the implications of AI for human cognition, We also talk about MOOCs. George was a pioneer of massive open online courses in their very early days, and he's continued to develop and deliver MOOCs, including one he's doing right now on helping instructors new to online make that pivot necessitated by COVID-19. And while the pandemic isn't a direct focus of our conversation, it's there in the background, especially as the need for and emphasis on online learning is growing as a result. And much of what George has studied and written about and theorized about seems extra relevant in the context of April and May 2020. Connectivism, MOOCs, learning analytics, networks, openness, how technology impacts our humanity, all of that feels extra relevant. Well, you cover a lot of ground there. What reflection questions do you have to offer for this episode? And as a reminder, listeners, you can find the reflection questions in the show notes available at leadinglearning.com slash episode 238. Well, I'm actually not going to offer reflection questions. This is a nod to George's emphasis on self-regulation and his argument that one of the most urgent skill sets that we need in this current open learning landscape that we're now in is how to set goals, how to develop learning strategies, and how to monitor progress towards those goals and the effectiveness of those strategies. And those goals and strategies and those measurements can't or at least shouldn't be handed to learners if the learning is to be as uh, effective as possible and to be deep. And that, of course, dovetails with what you and I have talked and written about a lot, Jeff, namely that learning is effortful. And while we have a growing number of tools and technologies, and those tools and technologies are ever more effective thanks to things like AI and learning analytics, ease can be a bad thing in learning where experimentation and effort and sometimes confusion are key. So this time around, the reflection question is a DIY project. Craft your own question or questions after you listen to what George has to say. Hey, and you can still go and share those in the comments at the show notes for this episode at episode 238. But in the meantime, let's move on to the conversation with George Siemens. Hello, and welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. I'm Salisa Steele, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. George Siemens. George is a professor 
at the University of Texas at Arlington and director of the Center for Change and Complexity in Learning at the University of South Australia. He's also a writer, a theorist, having originated connectivism, a theoretical framework for understanding learning in a digital age. He's a speaker, having delivered keynote addresses in more than 35 countries, a pioneer of massive open online courses, and a researcher delving into topics such as networks, learning analytics, openness, human and artificial cognition, and how technology impacts our humanity. George, welcome to the Leading Learning Podcast. Uh, thanks, Lisa. Great to be here. So I'd like to start with connectivism, which I know dates back uh, to the early 2000s, um, so going back a little bit. But maybe you can briefly um, tell folks what connectivism or remind them of that, and then uh, talk a little bit about why you saw the need to posit it. Well, it's a... Yeah, great question. It, it's uh, in the environment, it's a little different than when the idea of connectivism was first formed. Uh, it's been, I think, 15, 16 years now, if not more. But uh, the context that gave rise to my thinking on it might be useful to reflect on and then looking at perhaps relevance that it might have currently. But it it was in the uh, early 2000s, and I was part of a group of individuals that were actively involved in, at that point, using technologies just to connect, share, and collaborate globally. And so rather than being confined to the students that I might physically have in front of me or the colleagues that I might physically have within my department, I was able to connect and interact with people from around the world. And it just felt like this was a structurally different experience than what I had been informed learning was. And even looking at theories of cognitivism through to constructivism, there was this sense that the shape of the network, the shape of the people that I was interacting with was distinct and unique, and it provided really a very different set of affordances and opportunities. And I found that my engagement with that network in many ways is what made me intelligent or what made me capable of being intelligent. And so the core idea that I posited was essentially that when we learn, we're essentially involved in a process of pruning and forming and developing our networks. And the argument at that stage was that these networks occur sort of at three distinct levels. One level is there's literally a biological underpinning of learning. And this is something that many other theories of learning don't address exclusively, but it's that we have neurons connecting, forming when we learn a new concept, when we recognize a person, when we try to recall something, we're activating existing networks and so on. So in this sense, the network learning lens in connectivism addresses that at an absolute biological level, it's about networks. The second level was around conceptual development, and this is much of what we do in our school systems today, at least in our formal learning system. And that is that you learn a new idea, you relate it to other ideas, you engage with concepts, you see how concepts fit together, you eventually develop an understanding of a domain that allows you to get a degree or to get some kind of formal recognition that says you've got a bachelor's of science or you have a, a master's in education or something comparable. And so in that sense, these networks, these uh, these concepts, if you will, hold or are held in a network type structure and how we relate ideas to other ideas is essentially what we're talking about when we say networks of, of conceptual networks of learning. And a lot of the work that's been done in concept networks or similar areas of inquiry reflect that. The third level at which learning occurs and happens is something that's much more relevant, I think, to people in the professional learning space, meaning individuals who are employed in an organization, lifelong learners, and so on. And these are the social networks and the social systems 
systems that are part of our capability to be intelligent. And increasingly, that's starting to include cognitive agents such as apps on our phone. It's increasingly looking like it may be artificial intelligent agents that help us work through and navigate information and so on. So at a very broad overview, that's learning. It's connected and networked. It occurs at these three distinct levels, biological, conceptual, and external. And that was what I was trying to articulate from a learning process and a learning experience. Well, and so you mentioned yourself that, you know, it's 15, 16 years old at at this point. Uh, What's changed in that time since you originated the theory, do you still feel like it all still applies to how learning is happening now? Or have you seen the need for tweaks or, or even major changes to, to how you first thought about it? Uh, I, I think it absolutely applies. I think if anything, it applies perhaps more than than it did at the time that I was first putting it forward. Uh, we actually recently put in a uh, book submission to Springer for for uh, a book on connectivism, simply because the interest and the the recognition that this is a way of engaging with others in a way that can impact us across the duration of our lives seems to still be quite a central area of focus. So if I would say the core ideas are still there, that learning is this process of being networked and connected, and that occurs at those three levels I just mentioned. If anything, we've started to realize the growing importance, especially when we're dealing with complex problems or complex phenomena, that it's not being done by an individual. The And by it, I mean the learning, the knowledge acquisition isn't handled by an individual. More and more, everything that we do is a function of teams and networks. And we hold, if you will, pieces of information within that network. So if we're trying to solve a complex challenge or confront a complex uh, opportunity, then we rely on activating those networks and those systems. It could be something as simple as a company that wants to enter a new market and needs to bring together discrete areas of expertise in order to take that on. It could be something as complex as many people listening to this might be facing with, say, COVID and health crisis. These are not challenges that an individual can sit in a corner and think her way through and then act in a meaningful way. So if anything, the appeal of the network in complex system becomes more significant. The need for us to devote attention and effort to how we connect to others and how we connect concepts becomes increasingly more significant. So I would say the main or the primary tweaks have just been the growing recognition of artificial intelligence in these external networks and also the greater need for coordination mechanisms as systems become more and more complex. Mm. So yeah, more and more true and then just sort of some refinements in terms of some of the supporting technologies and and resources that might be either available and or needed, I guess, in the in the sense of the coordination that you mentioned there. Right, right. And so, you know, around the same time, I guess maybe even a a little bit earlier that, you know, when you were um, developing connectivism, I mean, you were also really involved with with pioneering massive open online courses. And I know you continue to be involved in MOOCs. I I know you're teaching a new one now um, as we're talking, focused on helping instructors make that transition um, to online teaching that's being required um, because of COVID-19. I'd just be curious to hear what you see as the the strong points of of the MOOC as a format and what you might see as as its limitations. As as a format, I think MOOCs represent 
a cycle of change that has been going on for decades, probably almost a century. And that change is that we are more and more required to activate knowledge and learning in our daily lives beyond formal schooling. So if you consider even 30 years ago or 40 years ago, the view that you do your K-12 schooling and then maybe a four-year degree. So you spend 15, 16 years in a formal schooling system and then you get a job and you work. Now, clearly it wasn't that cut and dried, but now I think we're spending more of our career learning informally than we are learning formally. Like in past, the mindset often was you, you, you learn to get a degree and then you work. But now the reality is if you graduated when you're 25 years old, and let's say you're 50 years old now, and over the last 25 years, you've had to rely on perpetual ongoing learning needs, almost this this idea of learning as a way of being, meaning you need to constantly upgrade and reskill. You need to learn how to use new technologies. You need to learn how to engage with people in different ways. You need to learn how to interact with people from different cultures. You need to learn how to use, let's say, data science methods to understanding phenomena that you might uh, not have used those tools for in the past. You you need to reskill to acquire new programming languages, and the list goes on. So I think what MOOCs represent is a recognition that we've had a demand side increase in learning needs that runs 50, 60, 70 years. But we really haven't had a structural supply side increase in providing the needs that those learners have. We, yeah, we had professional programs. You can go back on evenings and weekends to a university. You might do a professional master's or an MBA, but by and large, they still assume the centrality of the traditional university sector and the learner adjusting her life toward that university model. What MOOCs represent, though, is a recognition that that's not how learning works anymore. Learning is perpetual and ongoing, and the learner themselves needs the ability to to meet their needs while they're having a family, while they're engaged in a range of different uh, opportunities. So um, it, it's it's uh, primarily, I think, the output of, of that experience. And that's what MOOCs do very well. They provide flexible, accessible learning opportunities to individuals who are living complex and complicated lives. Now, what MOOCs don't do well, though, is provide the traditional support structures that help learners to be successful. So in many of our classrooms, we've recognized the value of a schedule helps students stay on task. If you have a class that you need to attend Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, that'll help you be more focused on your learning activities because there's something in your schedule that you literally have to go to, even if you're not motivated to learn, but you go and you sit in a lecture or you do learning activities and by default you learn and you uh, engage with with the subject matter. So there's a far greater need for self-regulation on the part of individuals students. And MOOCs, we we haven't created that support infrastructure. Now, one of the reasons we have, say, the high failure, high dropout rates that MOOCs have is based on at least partially the fact that those support infrastructures aren't placed or aren't in place. Another aspect may just be that people don't want to complete a MOOC necessarily. They just want to 
get discrete knowledge uh, to solve a particular task. But I think more of the challenge is simply due to the fact that we don't know how to support and promote self-regulated learning in these online or distance environments at the same level that we've built within our university campuses. So I think that's probably the single biggest failure is the engagement concerns that MOOCs provide or that that MOOCs uh, have that we haven't successfully addressed yet. Hmm. And so I think Perhaps someone has a similar question to what I asked about connectivism. I mean, you know, obviously you've been involved in MOOCs for for a long time. So in terms of their their relevance, I, I think I'm sort of hearing from what you've already said that you know you you imagine them continuing to be very relevant going forward. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Um, the the relevance of it isn't really, I think, uh, up for grabs. If you look at it currently, there's probably the numbers vary. I've heard a high of uh, 250 million MOOC takers globally, um, and, which which seems a little high. But definitely, I know if you add in some of the Chinese MOOC platforms that you're definitely approaching the 200 million level for people who've signed up and been involved or taken some kind of a of a course on edX or Coursera or Shutong X or some of the complementary MOOC platforms. Now, So they're relevant in the sense that for people who are motivated to acquire distinct skills, such as programming or, let's say, an interest for just recreational learning, for lack of a better word, trying to make sense of of technology in um, and, and then social sciences and humanities in light of our age today. That's another terrific opportunity. So if you consider some of the most prominent MOOCs in terms of popularity have an interesting dichotomy on platforms like edX and Coursera. On the one hand, it's heavily based towards computer science and programming skills or data, data science skills. But on the flip side, some of the most popular courses are on happiness and positive psychology and well-being. And so you have that interesting mix where you have both learning for employment and related opportunities, but also a deep interest on the part of many students for just a better quality of life and so on. So I, I think going forward, universities haven't built that pipeline to meet the needs of learners across the duration of their lives that Concepts like MOOCs or related platforms such as LinkedIn Learning or Khan Academy for younger populations, those will only continue to grow in attention and relevance. And even though you know MOOCs have, have been around for in their current form with edX and other groups for about eight years now, they're still seeing rapid growth. And if anything, the current crisis if you uh, with COVID is driving a lot more attention to recreational or personal interest learning in the the form of MOOCs and MOOC platforms. Mm-hmm. Well, so maybe switch gears just a little bit, although it's still in, in the same realm, but I know learning analytics is another area where you've spent a lot of time. And so I would be interested in your thoughts around the, the most exciting potential for learning analytics, kind of what you think it might be able to do for, you know, how we as, as humans uh, learn and also the converse side of that, the, you know, what reservations or concerns that, if any, that you might have about how learning analytics um, can be used or are being used? Well, I think on the one hand, learning, well, let me try a twofold path here. So learning analytics, I think, provides two significant points of value to learning professionals, to corporate learning, to universities, and uh, any any kind of related learning setting where learning is structurally planned and formally taught and then assessed and evaluated. So I think on the one hand, 
it will and it is providing advances to how we understand learning. So at its core, learning analytics is a learning sciences, psychology of learning uh, contributing player. And what that means is we understand through the actions that individuals engage in as they're learning an online setting or learning with digital technologies that we we gain understanding into self-regulatory habits. We gain understanding in terms of the behavioral clusters that students fit into when they're involved with learning a new idea or when they get frustrated or when they get overwhelmed and so on. So I think in that regard, learning analytics has significant potential to contribute to our understanding of how learning occurs, especially in digital settings. A second aspect, which may be more relevant to your listeners and is certainly very relevant to any university sector these days, is that as we understand learning, And as we understand the points of drop-off for students, such as they lose interest or they get overwhelmed or they get confused, we have a mechanism for near real-time feedback to everyone involved in the system. So you have indications that students drop off at a certain point in a course or a professional learning program. Is it a function of design? Do we need a better learning design intervention? Are we assessing the things that we say we should be assessing? Is it a challenge about teaching and the way that the course or the topic area is being taught? Is it about support scaffolds that the student or that the learner needs in order to be successful and so on? So I think with those two trajectories, the contribution to basic science in our understanding of learning, as well as very practical intervention activities for scaffolding support, guiding learners to better self-regulatory capabilities, influencing the learning design process, influencing how we teach and so on. I think those are the two strands that learning analytics can contributes to most heavily in in both formal education, but also in corporate learning or informal learning areas. And then do you have any um, reservations or concerns around how learning analytics might be be used? Any sort of you know, potential for the, the flaws in the systems or, or those two values, those two sort of streams you were talking about and how, um, how that data could be misused potentially? That's a great question, and I think a really important area of focus. The there, there absolutely is that possibility. I think we have that. Anytime there's data and you have data that's fragmented often across different platforms, there's enough illustrations from social media where it's been misused, it's been intentionally abused, it's been used for surveillance purposes, it's been used in a lot of inappropriate and potentially unethical ways. So that's something that I know within the learning analytics community, we've had as an ongoing conversation for, for almost a decade now. And the questions that we're asking specifically is, what's the value trade-off when you provide your data to an institution? Uh, what is it that you're expecting them to do with that data reasonably? And what is it that they can do to help you become a better learning by virtue of having data about you available. Now, in some cases, we we all benefit from it. So let's say you've taken a series of courses or learning modules in a platform like LinkedIn Learning or edX or Coursera, and then the system has some recognition of your interests and your areas of of, uh, learning enthusiasm, and it provides additional recommendations for you that you might not have been aware of. And that can be very useful because you can say, oh, I didn't even realize that this was an option or that this was a topic that was available. So I think from that end, that's a fair exchange of data. We make 
our interests available, and then the system can give us better guidance and direction on what we might want to do and what we may wish to do next. Another positive use could be if there's indications of I'm not where I should be within a particular course. I'm falling behind or I'm at risk of dropping out or I'm not engaging in a way that's going to help me be successful in a program. That also can be a nice sort of support structure that either alerts the university or the organization that some additional support might be required for a particular student or a learner. Now, where things change, though, is when that starts to get at some of our core learning needs and learning activities. So as an illustration, I think one of the most urgent skill sets that we need in this kind of open learning setting where we have universities and YouTube and MOOCs and LinkedIn and a range of other platforms where learning is available. One of our most important skills is how do we set goals? How do we develop learning strategies? And how do we monitor our success and progress towards those goals and the effectiveness of our strategies? And that fits under this umbrella of self-regulated learning. My concern is that when we have systems that nudge us and prod us and move us forward, that we fail to develop those self-regulatory capabilities. Quite often, the only way through to effective learning is through internal struggle, if you will, confusion, extra time, effort, finding strategies that don't work, and the list goes on. So for me, that's, I think, the biggest abuse that I'm concerned about with data usage is that it will help take away and underdevelop core needs to be in charge of our own goal setting and our own planning, namely self-regulation. Now, there's another area that is, I think, more might be more of a concern for others, which is just the, the ethical use of that data and the privacy around those data that we uh, we, we don't see it being misused. Uh, we don't see it being used unethically, such as profiling certain populations that then are not given the kind of support they need. We've had unfortunate cases all Already where these kinds of data-centric approaches help uh, and or, or result in an organization eliminating, say, certain candidates, uh, women candidates for certain positions, just by virtue of the bias that exists within those systems. And so I think it's important to recognize that in many cases, what data does is it helps make existing biases and existing um, in inequalities in the system more explicit. And as a result of that, we it, it can perpetuate those biases in a way that is harmful and continues to be harmful for everybody involved. So I think that's an area of focus that is more systemic in how are we developing our models and our systems that, that are biased against populations that may already have been underserved by our existing learning systems. Well, thank you. I think that uh, point uh, around, you know, the the bias that may be built in is certainly one I've heard before. I had not uh, heard this idea that perhaps the, the the supports that might be built in could actually undermine learning, this idea of, you know, the, undercutting the self-regulated uh, learning. I think that's a fascinating point. I'm really interested by that. Um, you know, I know so many of our listeners um, who are, you know, working in lifelong learning they may not have uh, access to tons of data or have, um, you know, kind of data analysts and, and lots of resources to work with learning analytics. So I'm wondering if you would have any advice um, for how to approach learning analytics practically, kind of first steps to take or even just what organizations might need to be considering or thinking about doing with learning analytics if they're just getting started. 
Yeah, that, that's, uh, I think so many of us face that challenge today and in so many fields. On the one hand, the there is a need for data expertise. Like we, we need to have the capability to be able to work with data, to move data from, uh, say, you know, a, a cloud-based environment to whatever we're using for our analytics environment. We need people who have the right kind of software skills or the right kind of analytics skills. We need people who have the, the right mindsets to be able to ask provocative questions, grounded questions, and being able to verify that the results that we're coming up with are reflect proper research design or proper data science uh, methods that, that don't misdirect the truth of uh, you know, the, the insight that is in the data and the list goes on. So I think that's a really critical area is the institutional skill sets cannot be overstated in terms of how urgent they are. A second set of skills that is important here is around the topic of how do you understand what matters in learning, meaning you need to have a, a team or someone with awareness of learning processes and what can the data that we have access to actually tell us about what's happening in terms of learning or learning-related processes. So those are, I think, two, two critical things to look at. You need the technical skills, but you also need the learning-based conceptual skills. Now, in terms of how you get started, uh, first of all, uh, I'll just make a couple detour off to the side, but we, we have an, on the, the Society for Learning Analytics Research, we have an op- a handbook. It's free PDF to download around uh, you know handbook of learning analytics. And it's a great place to get started there is just to look at what is possible with, with analytics in learning processes. And that may spur some interest or some insight into what an organization might be able to do. Secondly, uh, we have just received approval through University of Texas uh, at Arlington for a Master's of Science in Learning Analytics that will be deployed shortly. So, And that's part of a growing number of master's programs that either have a stream in learning analytics or that have a focus around using data and educational processes. So I'd encourage individuals to look at at uh, you know their, their local university or organizations that have that particular angle. If, if that's something that they want to make a big uh, commitment to or an uh, interested in pursuing. So with those two resources aside, what a team should start doing, I think, is just begin. There are a lot of intro data courses on edX and and Coursera, starting with basic learning analytics work. It'll help you understand what does data that's generated in an LMS look like? What are basic processes that an analyst might use to understand, say, something like social networks? What are some of the common tools that are or approaches that are being used, such as uh, being able to understand um, a lot of different data from a lot of different sources? How do you integrate them? How do you ensure that you're you're linking them to cognitive processes? And, and the list goes on. So those are a lot of activities that 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 you can gain just by taking a series of data science related courses. But I would say, broadly speaking, the best way to get started is literally just to start. There are a number of professional online communities. There are our, there's our annual learning analytics conference that's now going on on 11 years. The next one is held at University of California at Irvine. There are uh, a group of, uh, of, of tools that have become much easier to use. So even people who do basic work with, with reasonably intuitive interfaces such as Tableau can start to get insight into the social networks of their organization. They can gain insight into where in the learning materials that we've developed, the students start to drop off, uh, you know, how effective are the assessments that we're using, and the list goes on. So uh, it's a bit of a, of a rambling answer there, but I think the, the main point I'd say is look for 
for the capability question. You know, do you have the capacity internally to be able to begin working with learning data to solve learning related challenges? Uh, and, and if not, there's, like I said, a range of opportunities from the handbook to master's courses to uh, MOOCs that you can start to dive into. And, and secondly, you know, I'd really encourage individuals just to get started in some form. Begin. It doesn't have to be anything complex. It can be something as basic as just looking at, at the social networks that students form when they're, they're learning. They're learning, Or it could be something like you're doing some basic topic modeling on a complex or multifaceted discussion forum to try and get a sense of what are the prominent or the intuitive conversations that are being held there and so on. Well, that's great. Uh, as you point out, there are so many resources available. And so um, it, doing that uh, reflection around the capability internally, and then if you're looking to build that, knowing that there are these resources that you can go out there and find. Um so I'm going to switch gears again a little bit and, and sort of just pick up and give you kind of a wide open question, which is just, you know, when you think um, uh, maybe the next five years out or so, what comes to mind in terms of the biggest challenges and opportunities facing organizations that are providing lifelong learning? What do, what do you think is kind of on the horizon out there? I look at the, the five-year cycle, uh, and my current interest uh, is now very much on human and artificial cognition. I'm, I'm interested in how do we work together with our agents that are increasingly exhibiting intelligence type of behavior. And what I mean by that is we're, we're seeing anytime you do something in a digital setting, there's data that's generated. The data that's generated then can be used for building models or be doing something that helps give you better insight into learning and learning related processes. And those are becoming more intelligent. And what I mean by becoming more intelligent, I mean, there's automated processes in place. There are uh, recommended uh, recommendations that are often based on hundreds of thousands or millions of, of individuals. There's natural language systems, such as how we interact with Siri or Google or Alexa, and the list goes on. So I think our future is really one of human and artificial cognition. It's one where we're going to be doing knowledge work together with a technology, and that technology is going to have a certain type of agency. And I think in many of our organizations, we're not quite aware of how quickly that's coming and how quickly that's going to make an impact on our educational processes. I think we already experience it because we use it in our daily lives. We use simple cognitive activities like calendar reminders, or you might use uh, you know, a, a way to cluster or manage your email through rules that you've set up on your inbox. You might have certain recommender, uh, recommender systems that you use for, say, your social interactions uh, through social media that you're engaged in. You've benefited from it on LinkedIn. LinkedIn, when somebody is recommended as a colleague or, uh, say, an employment opportunity is recommended and so on. So those systems that for now have largely been supporting human cognition are starting to flip. And, and by flip, I mean they're starting to become a part of our cognition. They're starting to become a thinker with us. And that's a structural change because we're starting to offload certain cognitive capabilities to this system. We're starting to offload some of the organizational aspects where the, the recommendation aspect, the, the, the low-level cognitive tasks are being pushed onto these, these growing range of automated systems. And that'll only continue to increase. And so when I think of, say, a pilot flying an airplane and how she's already involved in a process of heavy instrumentation, the machine is starting to make more and more decisions on the pilot's behalf, and the pilot is – there's a change in the kind of work that they're doing. And so when I look at a company 
company. And if you have an individual, it could be an engineer, it could be a salesperson. But if you have these employees involved in certain activities where more and more of the work is being done in an automated way, or more and more of the work involves an agent supplementing human cognition, then the question becomes, now that we're handing those things off to these various agents, what becomes of human cognition? What do we start to do that we perhaps haven't been doing as well in the past as we're now required to be doing. So I, I would say if there's one area, and this is, again, you mentioned the five-year timeline, so I'm not thinking next week, but if I was to say one area that's of critical importance for learning personnel in both universities, but also in corporate sectors to uh, figure out it's what does it look like when we do knowledge work with agents that aren't human? And what is that longer term implication? And how do we, what are the skills that we need? And what are the things that we're happy to pass off to other systems? So I'd say that would be my primary focus is, is the human and artificial cognition intersection. Mm. So we're going to start wrapping down. And the next to last question I want to ask you is when we ask of all uh, guests on the Leading Learning Podcast, and it focuses on your personal learning. And the question is, what's one of the most powerful learning experiences you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your formal education? Well, that's a, that's a provocative question. I it's a tough one because, you know, on the one hand, we, we always think of learning as being additive in a way, right? We, we know we add on and we add on and we add on. And I think sometimes pruning is a really good form of learning as well. And and pruning could be things like error correction or it could be, uh, you know, we really thought we understood something and we find out later that we actually didn't understand it. And so a lot of my interest over the last while, uh, in addition to this focus on human artificial cognition is, you know, how does sense making relate to learning. When we encounter these complex landscapes where we have increasingly a lot of voices and a lot of opinion on these different platforms that we can engage in, what does that mean to make sense of that? And how does that differ from learning? And so probably the biggest learning experience I've had over the last 10 to 15 years is actually hopefully this doesn't come across the wrong way, but it's actually sort of a, a an error correction or a negative type of a learning outcome. Mm-hmm. So let me put it to you this way. When I was probably early 2000s up until maybe even five years ago, I was just an adamant proponent of the incredible value of openness and transparency and everybody needs a voice and we should all be able to contribute and share and, and very sort of utilitarian view uh, of, of that space. And I think what most of us have realized, and I've certainly discovered over the last five plus years or so, is that constraints are a type of freedom, meaning you, and we see that now. Social media, Twitter, a number of these platforms are just incredibly toxic in certain communities or in certain sub-communities. And they're actually detrimental to learning in some cases. So I'm finding the value of there is benefit to high coherence and high trust closed spaces for learning. Not everything needs to be open the way that I would have definitely declared everything needed to be about a decade ago. So I'd say one of my most interesting learning experiences comes not 
from exclusively learning something new, but rather from going through a long-term process of sense-making and realizing the value that constraints have on helping communities or tight networks build trust and build coherence in order to achieve uh, some very complex outcomes. Not everything needs an opinion. There are certain things where if the science is reasonably settled, an opinion isn't required, and we need to start valuing these trusted methods and processes, such as the scientific method that served us for hundreds of years. And we're starting to see, if you will, in some of the learning spaces, almost a rise of, of opinion and that, that trumps the focus on evidence. And I think that's the thing that I've found for myself to be the most significant learning experiences, the power and the value of appropriate constraints to create high knowledge environments. Mm. Well, thank you very much for sharing that. And I think the, the point you started out with around the need for pruning, that need for unlearning being so important um, as we grow and evolve. So final question, George, is just if listeners would like to learn more about your work or connect with you, where would you point them? Well, I, I guess in, in uh, you know, on Twitter, I guess G Siemens is where you can you can find me as a rule um, for random useless uh, tidbits of information. Uh, Google Scholar, obviously, for publications. I used to be much more active in blogging, but I've shut down a number of, of the sites that I used in the past. Uh, LinkedIn, I guess, would be another place for people to try and connect with me as well. And then failing all of those, uh, you know, email. <laughs> so, so I think that's currently where, where you'd find most of my activity is, is though, uh, shared through Twitter or, uh, through Google Scholar. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for making time for the conversation. Terrific. Thanks for the time. And, uh, I certainly appreciate the work that you do in helping getting ideas out, uh, from, from different learning theorists around the world. So thanks for, for your efforts here as well. That concludes the interview with George Siemens. To get show notes, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 238. And the show notes will not include reflection questions this go-round, or at least not provided ones. But we encourage you to reflect on the conversation and see if there's a question or two or three that seems worth you asking of your learning business based on what he shared. And again, you could share those in the comments at the show notes at episode 238. And when you check out those show notes, you're going to see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of what you hear, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe as it helps Jeff and I to get a little uh, data analytics on the impact of what we're doing. And we'd also be grateful if you take just a minute to give us a rating on Apple Podcast. Just go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple. Salisa and I personally appreciate your reviews and ratings, but more importantly, those reviews and ratings help the podcast show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Finally, consider following us and sharing the good word about leading learning. You can find us on Twitter at leadinglearning.com slash Twitter, on Facebook at leadinglearning.com slash Facebook, and on LinkedIn at leadinglearning.com slash LinkedIn. We also encourage you to use the hashtag leading learning on any of those channels. Wherever and however you do it, please do help spread the word about leading learning. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.